You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. This afternoon, I welcomed President von der Leyen to Windsor to continue our discussions about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Prime Minister Thierry Schiff, it is an honour and a pleasure to be here in Windsor with you. And it is with a great sense of satisfaction that we stand here together. Nearly seven years after Britain voted to leave the European Union, a breakthrough was reached this week on the most controversial part of the Brexit agreement between the UK and the EU. What to do about Northern Ireland? I'm pleased to report that we have now made a decisive breakthrough. Together, we have changed the original protocol and are today announcing the new Windsor framework. Northern Ireland is a part of the United Kingdom, but it shares a land border with the Republic of Ireland, a member of the EU. To solve this conundrum of what to do about the Irish border, and to avoid the imposition of a hard border on an island that witnessed decades of violence, Brexit negotiators came up with the Northern Ireland Protocol, which left Northern Ireland in the EU's single market for goods. But many in the unionist community in Northern Ireland were unhappy. They felt that the protocol treated the region differently than the rest of the UK and put up trade barriers between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. People need to listen to what we're saying. They need to take heed of what has been said by the unionist community. And I hope that the message has been heard in London and in Dublin and Brussels because we need to deal with this issue and deal with it quickly. The most apparent damage to citizens is the impact which it has on our economy. And secondly, of course, and this is much more important as far as I'm concerned, the damage which it does to the constitutional relationship between Northern Ireland and the rest of the country to which we belong. This week, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak sealed a new deal to address these concerns, with von der Leyen travelling across the English Channel from Brussels to meet Sunak and, somewhat controversially, meeting King Charles III. Later, Ursula von der Leyen will meet with King Charles amid DUP criticism. Ursula von der Leyen having tea with King Charles. Uh, many are criticising this as well, a breach of royal protocol. Uh, the royal family. Both London and Brussels hope that this agreement will set the relationship on a new course. The new Windsor framework is here to benefit people in Northern Ireland and support all communities celebrating peace on the island of Ireland. And this is why I believe we can now open a new chapter in our partnership. A stronger EU-UK relationship, standing as close partners, shoulder to shoulder, now and in the future. 
I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent. Today, we'll examine what's in this newly renamed Windsor Framework and whether it really is the breakthrough it seems. And we'll be exploring further what all this means for the EU's relationship with the UK going forward. Joining me today is Alva Ray, the co-host of our political sister podcast, Westminster Insider. Hi, Alva. Hello, thanks for having me. And we have an EU confidential first. A special guest is joining us for our panel discussion, and that's none other than Sir Julian King, Britain's last EU commissioner to serve here in Brussels before Brexit. Hi, good afternoon. Sir Julian was also previously Britain's ambassador to Ireland and to France. Thanks so much for joining us. Lovely to be here. So as we know, this deal has been hailed as a breakthrough, both by Ursula von der Leyen and Rishi Sunak. So what's in it? I mean, one of the main achievements of this new agreement is the introduction of green and red lanes. And that will allow goods coming in from Great Britain to Northern Ireland to have fewer checks, fewer custom demands, for example. So that's a big win in terms of what the unionists in Northern Ireland were looking for. There are also moves on VAT, on taxation, that in certain circumstances, UK VAT rates will apply in Northern Ireland. So that's also a move on the EU side. But it is important to say that we were expecting something more of a change on the role of the European Court of Justice. That doesn't seem to have changed now. Uh, The European Court of Justice ultimately will still be the ultimate arbiter, will still have a role in the application of the EU regime, EU laws in Northern Ireland. Also, there's a very important provision, and that's the Stormont Break. And that is a mechanism by which 30 members of the Northern Ireland Assembly are needed, and they can then refer any new EU law that's coming in and ask for changes to that. And that's a huge move by the EU. This is giving the Northern Ireland Assembly much more of a role in how EU laws apply to it, Although it is important to say that here in Brussels, there's a lot of talk from EU officials that this is very much a last resort, that they don't envisage that this will happen all too often. But definitely a move by the EU. Alva, what are your thoughts on the storm and break? I think the phrase that's been used is that it's to correct the democratic deficit that was an issue in the original arrangements. So I think that particularly members of the DUP, members of the unionist community who objected to this, feel like they haven't had a way of raising their objections formally. This gives them a way of doing that. And the thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that Stormont hasn't been sitting for over a year and it was brought down because of these issues over the Northern Ireland Protocol, at least in name. There might be other factors involved, but the DUP have essentially been so angry about those previous Brexit arrangements for Northern Ireland that they brought down the Assembly. So Northern Ireland hasn't had a functioning government and essentially the Stormont break is an incentive to get back into the Assembly because obviously you can't use that break if Stormont isn't regularly sitting and it's made very clear in these arrangements that Stormont can't just pop up for one day and pull this lever. It needs to be sitting regularly for this to be implemented. Yeah, and of course, they're saying here in Brussels, they've stressed that this can only be used as a last resort and exceptional circumstances. And then, yeah, if it went then to the UK government and they decided to raise this, it would go to some kind of a dispute resolution mechanism. So, you know, the EU are very much stressing this is a kind of a last resort. 
But on that issue of the whole democratic deficit and, and a greater role for Northern Ireland, we spoke to Barry Andrews. He's an Irish MEP from the Fianna Fáil party and a member of the European Parliament here in the EU. And he explained a bit about how the Parliament here in Brussels and Strasbourg has been trying to get more involvement from MLAs, as you explained there, Alva, members of the Parliament in Northern Ireland, involved in the whole Brexit process. First of all, previous attempts to resolve the protocol were take-it-or-leave-it measures where Northern Ireland was only barely consulted. I think a a huge amount of effort went into consulting all communities in Northern Ireland on this occasion. And I think there's a recognition that there should be better links between Belfast and Brussels for quite a long time. And I've been campaigning for what we call connective tissue so that MLAs can have the earliest possible visibility of measures that may affect them to address the democratic deficit. So the Stormont break goes some way to addressing that in a more systematic way. So I brought MLAs over to Brussels for round tables on a couple of occasions to go through the issues. We had members from the DUP, from SDLP, from Sinn Féin, the Alliance Party. Under the Brexit trade agreement with the European Union, the EU and the UK set up a thing called the Parliamentary Partnership Assembly to try and make sure that there is a place where MEPs and MPs can get together and share ideas. And that has worked reasonably well. There's been two meetings so far. There's another meeting, two more meetings due this year. You can never replace what we had before. That damage, unfortunately, can only be mitigated. So the agreement uh, this week is part of the way that that can be mitigated. The steps we'll take now on Horizon, on energy cooperation, geopolitical cooperation, and particularly the protocol will be further steps to mitigate the damage. Julian King, coming to you, I mean, there's a lot of choreography around this deal this week. I mean, you have been at the inside of UK-EU relations back in your time as commissioner and indeed uh, when you're ambassador to Ireland and France. How do you read this in terms of von der Leyen and Rishi Sunak's relationship? I mean, it's quite the moment. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think this is potentially a, a big deal. As Sunak himself said at the press conference, it opens a new chapter. This is the beginning of a new chapter in our relationship. For a quarter of a century... And I think from the EU side, it's kind of both recognition for and an investment in the return of grown-up politics, return to a kind of more grown-up relationship. And that's why, because the EU side were willing to engage with the Sunak government and the Sunak government engaged in a way that was seen as serious that these new possibilities have opened up. I mean, the EU side have offered flexibilities, things we've just been talking about, including on some important practical uh, matters, uh, way beyond what had been offered before, uh, while at the same time, of course, still maintaining the overall structure and some some important safeguards. So I think it's, it's a recognition that the relationship can now move forward. Yeah. I mean, as you say there, it is important to note from the EU side that this was the trick of this deal, really, to move enough on the Northern Ireland Protocol that you could show that the EU was genuinely moving, giving concessions. But EU officials here are saying, you know, that this is not a fundamental change. It's interesting in London, they're renaming it as the Windsor Framework. Here in Brussels, we've been told they can call it the Windsor Framework or they can call it the Northern Ireland Protocol. They don't see it as something that's replacing the Northern Ireland Protocol. They, in fact, say, actually, there was an amendment within the Northern Ireland Protocol that it could change itself. (laughs) So, uh, and the EU is saying it's got greater safeguards. You know, it's become more flexible. But the UK has now agreed to give better information, more information. And it's been a bit of a give and take. 
But on that whole visit, Alva, it was controversial. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen met King Charles III and I must say kind of pipped Emmanuel Macron to the post there because uh, we'll get to that later. Macron, the king, is, is due to meet Macron. But just explain to us briefly, what was the controversy over that meeting? Yes, so the monarch in the UK is meant to be strictly politically neutral, and that's the way it's been for at least a century. It doesn't play a political role. And then we had sort of rumblings over the weekend that the king might be involved. And then, as we saw, the whole deal was unveiled at Windsor with obvious royal connotations. That's where Windsor Castle is, where the monarch is mostly based. Lots of royal trappings everywhere. The room in which the deal was unveiled had all these pictures of monarchs all around the wall, sort of covered in gold. Then after announcing the deal, von der Leyen went off and had tea with the king and it really, I think, was quite cleverly orchestrated to look as though there was a royal stamp of approval on it without ever saying that, because that would have been unconstitutional. So I think that this was sort of done to, I mean, in part, maybe to cajole the DUP, which, you know, the unionist community feels British in Northern Ireland, but often has more loyalty towards the the king or the queen and those British institutions than necessarily the current British government. So kind of adding that kind of gives it a sort of an air of of grandeur and royalty. But it's funny, it's been controversial, but it also hasn't been controversial. The palace put out a statement saying that the the king is very happy to meet any global leader on the advice of of his government. So they were quite keen to emphasise that he was only doing this because Rishi Sunak wanted him to. And of course, it is worth noting that that royal connotation, the word Windsor, would not be particularly go down particularly well with a lot of the nationalist community in Northern Ireland. So there was a political risk there by having this deal presented in front of pictures of British monarchs. That was politically risky as well, but the symbolism. But as you say, the palace keen to say it wasn't their idea, pushed it back on Rishi Sunak. Yeah, in Westminster, people have have sort of raised an eyebrow at it, but sort of let it go. And but just on that point, what you were saying before, Suzanne, about how the EU is talking about this to itself is so interesting because, of course, here it's being seen as as a complete replacement of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And I think in terms of that relationship that you were talking about between Rishi Sunak and von der Leyen, it's so interesting how much she's she's been happy to help him with the politics. You know, she's been happy to call it the Windsor Framework, to do the, the delicate dance to help Rishi Sunak sell the deal. Julian King, what do you think about that point that Ursula von der Leyen, you know, wanted to kind of help, quote unquote, Rishi Sunak or wanted to get this done. I mean, how important was it for the EU to get some kind of breakthrough on this? And how important are personalities when it comes to this? Well, personality does matter. I don't think there's any getting away from that. But so do changes on policy and changes in the context. And those are at play here as well. I mean, it's no secret that the EU collectively and some of the member states found it quite difficult to deal with with the Johnson government. He wasn't terribly trusted. They didn't really have a lot of time to get to grips with with Truss when she was prime minister. And they saw and see Sunak and his government as a different proposition. I don't think there's any, you know, there's no secret about any of that. But as the President of the Commission herself recognised, there's a wider context as well. The situation in Ukraine, the need to cooperate on that in support of Ukraine, but also to deal with some of the fallout around energy and the economy, an impetus to try and get some of this done now in 23, before all the changes that are going to be taking place in the EU and potentially in the UK in 2024. 
So I think there were a number of things that came together to make this happen. Yeah, and it was interesting seeing uh, von der Leyen. It was, it was quite the moment, uh, the pageantry of the whole scene and her getting the Eurostar over. And I, I did, I think a few people here did feel sorry for, for Maro Sefcovic, the European commissioner. He's been doing most of the negotiations here. He was stuck in a, in a quite a boring room here in the EU quarter briefing ambassadors while uh, von der Leyen was, um, you know, taking the glory, if you like, over in Windsor. But, you know, the commission president, I suppose, does move in and, you know, is the more senior in these situations. Although it is interesting that this issue never got to the level of EU leaders. They were happy, the EU countries, to let the commission handle this. Sefcovich checked in with ambassadors to see everyone was on the same page but really there was a sense that the EU you know had moved on and was happy to give the commission the role there we're going to take a short break but do stay with us because coming up we'll debate the nature of the EU's relationship with the UK going forward and where it all goes from here also we'll be bringing you a brand new feature on EU Confidential helping you our listeners to decode Brussels speak If you're a regular listener of our podcast, you may have realized that EU politics is full of jargon and seemingly never-ending acronyms. So we're going to have a little bit of fun at the end of our episodes and try to demystify some of these phrases as best we can. So be sure to stick around. We'll be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Welcome back. Now, we've looked into some of the details of the uh, so-called Windsor framework that was agreed this week. But what does it mean now for the EU and the UK going forward? I mean, I think it's important to say first that it's by no means done. The EU still has some procedural hurdles to go through. The Parliament is going to have to take some votes. The European Council, the member states are also going to have to take some decisions, although we expect here in Brussels it will be pretty much a done deal. Julian King, do you feel that this really is the breakthrough that both Rishi Sunak and the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen have hailed? Well, you're absolutely right, first of all, to say that it's not absolutely done yet. There's procedures on both sides that they'll need to get through. I suspect that they'll want to try and make some progress before the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in April to show that things are moving forward. But implementation of some of this, if it's agreed, is going to take a little bit of time. It does, nevertheless, 
open up some important new possibilities. Uh, I mean, the President of the Commission herself said that it was good news for cooperation on science and research, and it reopened the possibility of an agreement around the Horizon Europe programme. The financial services relationship between the UK and the EU, uh, they drafted an outline memorandum of understanding on how that was going to work, but it's been frozen linked to progress on Northern Ireland. Perhaps that now comes back into play. And uh, Prime Minister Sunak talked about deepening cooperation on a range of issues, on Ukraine, energy, climate, illegal migration. So those possibilities, I mean, nothing has been firmed up yet, but those possibilities have opened. Yeah, that Horizon Europe research programme in particular is something that had been paused by the EU effectively because of this Northern Ireland protocol. So yes, sense now that that is going to be unlocked. I mean, in terms of, look, we're having this conversation now while, you know, we've just marked the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. You know, what about in a broader level? I mean, you were here in Brussels representing Britain at the Commission. Do you feel there is a role for Britain to work closely or closer with the EU on defence and security? Or is this very much a kind of a NATO issue? Britain, after all, is a member of NATO and works closely with France, Germany, all these other members of NATO all the time. Do you think there's any role for the EU and the UK to work better when it comes to this whole issue of security? Uh, Well, on Ukraine, yes, I think there is definitely scope for building on the the cooperation that's already there around, for example, um, sanctions and sanctions implementation, where discussions have been going on for some months. The whole uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has refocused across uh, Europe uh, minds on security and defence. And I think it's actually clarified the roles of NATO and the EU. I mean, NATO has been strengthened in its core defence role, but people now recognise that the European Union can be a real security actor on a whole range of issues about reducing dependency, building resilience, dealing with cyber and hybrid threats and dis and misinformation, and making a practical contribution, as we've seen, to providing the means to Ukraine to defend themselves. So NATO and the EU have their respective roles. They can work together. And the UK, as a member of NATO and in its relationship with the EU can make a contribution. I'm sure that's part of the impetus for moving forward. Mm. Alva, just coming back again to this issue of what happens next in terms of EU-UK relationship, what do you think Rishi Sunak's chances are of uh, getting support from the Conservative Party, his own party, but also more importantly, as we've spoken about, the DUP, that main unionist party in Northern Ireland? Well, when they announced this deal, one Conservative put it to me that the hard work begins now. Um, I don't know how much, how true that is in terms of, I'm, I think probably negotiating the deal was quite hard as well. But this sense that the effort from Rishi Sunak and his team massively ramps up now because they're trying to sell the deal, as you say, to the backbenches of the Conservative Party and to the DUP. As we speak, Rishi Sunak and all of his backbenchers are on an away day in you guessed it, Windsor, (laughs) the same place where they sold the initial deal and he's trying to charm them, persuade them. And two things on this, I suppose the first would be that on the actual content of the deal, this is a clear improvement. And then the question is, if you voted for the deal that was less good, by what possible logic would you not vote for the improvement? So I think that all these Tory Eurosceptics sort of know that unless they find something when their lawyers go through it that they can point to, which makes this a big issue, it wouldn't make a lot of sense 
for them not to vote for it. But that doesn't mean they're not inclined to reject it because a lot of them don't like Rishi Sunak. There's still quite a lot of bad blood there. A lot of the people who are Eurosceptics or the people who back Boris Johnson feel like he was betrayed by Rishi Sunak. There's a lot of Tory psychodrama here, basically. So they're considering all of that. But I think it looks like they will find it difficult to find grounds to reject it at this point, even though they're taking their time. And then on the DUP side, that's different because they didn't vote for the Northern Ireland Protocol in the first place. It looks as though there's a little bit of a split where the leadership of the DUP would like to see Northern Ireland working, would love to see this as the basis for going back into Stormont, getting things up and running again ahead of the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which you mentioned But then hardliners would say, well, we haven't completely removed the influence of EU law here. We're not completely equal members of the UK under this agreement. We're never going to get rid of that. We wanted the Northern Ireland Protocol scrapped. Those people over in Brussels are still calling it the Northern Ireland Protocol. It clearly hasn't been scrapped. So it's difficult to see where they'll land. I think it's possible that they won't actually say where they come down for a very long time. But the important thing to say is that even though those groups are important politically for Rishi Sunak, it will pass anyway, even if all those people I've mentioned don't back it because Labour has already indicated that they will. So the big issue is will the DUP come back in and and the argument being it's as good as they're going to get from the EU side and are they prepared to kind of get on that train or not? Julian King, coming back to you, just one issue on the future relationship. We've got a visit next week. Rishi Sunak is due to meet Emmanuel Macron. So there's a summit, and I think there's a lot of effort being put into preparing that. I mean, this deal as well, if it's confirmed, as well as opening up possibilities for uh, the UK to cooperate with the EU that we've already touched on, it also opens up new possibilities in bilateral relations with European neighbours. And I think the summit with France is going to be the first test of that. How much progress are they going to be able to make on reinforcing bilateral cooperation on a range of issues with the defence and security issues that we've already touched upon, energy, where there's obviously some links that could be reinforced. And I guess they'll probably talk about um, illegal migration as well. Which is a big issue politically in Britain, this issue of migrants coming across the channel. And, you know, I know myself, people have been asking me here, oh, does this mean more cooperation between the EU and the UK on migration? Really, that's a more of a bilateral issue between France and Britain. But there is a hope that that will unlock more cooperation there. Uh, well, there's, I mean, there's a history, a long history of cooperation between the UK and France on trying to tackle some of the consequences of, of the flow of migrants. I mean, we were doing it when I was there as ambassador. So it's renewing that bilateral dialogue and seeing what can be done. Yeah. Finally, we mentioned about the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. That's coming up in April, and and that's referring to the peace agreement, also known as the Belfast Agreement, that was agreed. And that really brought to a close the troubles, those decades of violence in Northern Ireland. The United States and President Biden in particular, he's he's a proud Irish American, has been taking a close look at what's been happening on this. Do you think the position of America, Judy and King, do you think that has had a role to play in the background here? You say in the background. I don't think the Biden White House has made any secret of their interest in seeing progress here. President Biden calls himself a proud Irishman. A number of his senior officials, Jake Sullivan, for example, the national security advisor, cut their teeth working with the Clintons around support for the original uh, Belfast Good Friday Agreement. So they're deeply involved and have been uh, following this all the way through. I think that they will be very supportive if the deal is confirmed and there's progress, including progress in Northern Ireland. 
Yes, exactly. And I mean, there's a talk of a possible presidential visit by Joe Biden in April that maybe would take in Belfast, London or Dublin. OK, well, thank you so much to our guests, Alvare and Sir Julian King, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And if listeners are interested in learning a bit more about the Good Friday Agreement and what it means 25 years on, we're doing a special episode on it for the 25th anniversary on the sister podcast Westminster Insider in a few weeks' time. Thanks for that, Alva. We'll be sure to add a link in our show notes. So to finish up this week, we're introducing you to a new regular section we're going to run on the podcast, and that is Deciphering Brussels Speak. For our first segment, I'm joined by Jacopo Baragazzi, Scoop Getter-in-Chief here in Brussels. Jacopo, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So this week, our word of the week is perm rep. Perm rep. Perm rep. Jacopo, fill us in. What is a perm rep? A PEMREP stands for a permanent representative and means basically the ambassador to the EU, but it can also mean the building where the EU embassies is, because again in Brussels they are not called embassies, they are called permanent representations to the EU. That's interesting now because that's one of the unique things about Brussels, that instead of countries sending their ambassador to the EU, because the EU isn't a country, it's a collection of countries, you instead send permanent representatives to the EU who work not in the embassy but in the permanent representation to the EU. Yes, and these are particular kind of figures because, first of all, the ambassador to the EU, the so-called permanent representative, is a figure that deals with the prime minister office instead of the foreign minister. And that's the first thing that makes him different, which is one of the reasons why he has a different name. Fascinating. We didn't. I didn't really know that bit. So learn something new every day in this podcast. I mean, for us living and working here in Brussels, you hear it all the time. People saying, oh, I'm going to X country's perm rep or I'm meeting with the X country's perm rep. Perm rep is the building. So it means the staff that works at the building. So if you say I'm about to meet the Dutch perm rep, it could also mean that you're meeting with some staff working at the Dutch embassy to the EU. Okay, so for example, we'll take Italy. You would have a few experts on agriculture who've been seconded from Rome, experts on finance, maybe people from the central bank, experts on fisheries, and they're all working in the permanent representation of Italy here in Brussels. It depends on the size of the country, but they can even be more than 100 because uh, in a PEMREP, uh, there are all the kind of expertise you will find scattered across ministers in a capital. But uh, there, under the same roof, there are all these kind of expertises across all the possible policy dossiers, which is one of the reasons why they are different from the other embassies. Thanks a million for that, Jacopo. We'll be back to you, no doubt, in the coming weeks. So thanks for decoding some of that Brussels language for us. Thank you. And that's all the time we have today. If you like the podcast please do share the link with your friends or co-workers. And we always love to hear from our listeners. So any ideas for guests or topics, just send us some feedback or an email at podcast at politico.eu. This week's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, with production assistance from Ellen Bonin and Julia Poloni. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week.